This week's TribCast is sponsored by UTeach. UTeach prepares excellent STEM teachers who educate tomorrow's scientists and engineers to play a vital role in growing our economy. Learn more at uteach.utexas.edu. And the Texas Alliance for Patient Access. Telemedicine services aid emergency care in rural Texas. Learn more at tapa.info. Texas talking oh, What was that that you said? Texas talking ah, Gonna hoop upside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas got I'm Veronica Escobar, former El Paso County judge and candidate for U.S. Congress in District 16. I'm running because my good friend, Beto O'Rourke, is off to become our next U.S. Senator. And as he vacates this seat, I believe that more than ever, the border needs a strong voice to represent our interests in Washington, D.C. Enjoy this week's TripCast. Here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on the 7th of February with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined this week by reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Reporter Jay Root. The golden voice is back. (laughs) It's been too long. And it's really been too long since we saw our Washington bureau chief, Abby Livingston. Howdy. Howdy. Uh, We'll also be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please send them our way. Uh, And we won't have Evan here to answer them, but the rest of us will make do. So, um, well, Abby, as I said, we're lucky enough to have you in town this week and out of the madness of D.C. Um, I want to get your take on what you are forecasting for the March primary when it comes to U.S. House races. Uh, What's on your hot list? Like, what should the rest of us be keeping track of? Well, I think what's amazing is how many open seats there are. Uh, this We haven't seen this many competitive races, like, at least since 2004. Um, and what is extraordinary, I've covered House races since 2010, just how unpredictable these primaries are because there are so many candidates, so much so that national super PACs folks are generally, with the exception of, like, Emily's list, they're trying to stay out of it because they don't want to pick losers who won't make it to the runoff. So there's sort of a hold your fire mentality among a lot of groups um, who want to play just to see they're going to wait to the runoff. And that's just how chaotic and uncertain this is. I'm used to seeing much more interest and folks are just kind of hanging back and watching for a little while. I wonder if this is going to be the busiest runoff season we've had in a long time. I mean, there's some of these races where there are like, you know, 18 or 20 candidates. Yes, and it's it's two reasons. One, given the number of open seats and competitive possible general election seats that haven't been in play. Um, but yeah, it's also just, it's going to be really hard to clear the field. Uh, Senator Sylvia Garcia in Houston, she was seen as a clear shot at that primary and avoiding the runoff a few weeks ago. And now it's the math when you have six or seven people, and that's sometimes a small primary, it is really hard to fend off and uh, avoid that runoff. I think I saw she has an opponent who said he's going to spend whatever it takes. He had a lot of interesting quotes in that story. Um, and I, fascinatingly, he um, just What's sort of... What's his name? Remind me, sorry. Uh, Tahir Javed. And Good. so he um, he is a healthcare executive, and he spent a lot of the interview talking about the poor state of healthcare in the 29th district of Houston, east side, north side. And I finally just said, sir, you realize the outgoing incumbent is the most powerful Democrat in the U.S. House on the issue of healthcare. And he seemed a little startled. And then he, he basically said it was his fault, Gene Green. And so, um, you know, I'm not sure how that will work with a retail politician who has a relationship with a lot of the voters um, to attack him. But 
he's got a lot of money and he's ready to spend it. Didn't he also call Pasadena something like Stinkadina or something? <laughs> Did he really? <laughs> Which is a thing. Part of his district. <laughs> and I, he was coming. I can't remember out. if that's the right. I don't we think that's the, the right. We call the smell of money and liberty. <laughs> it, 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 yes, and so I, I was not familiar with that term, and apparently that is a local colloquialism for. Pas- Stinkadina, Pasadena, yeah. and it's so much so it's on Urban Dictionary, and I got to link to that, and I was really excited. <laughs> to Urban Dictionary. All right, well, so what districts in your mind are the most competitive for the primary? Uh, you know, places where, you know, candidates are raising, like, really unusual amounts of money, or if you had to, like, rank the top two in your mind? I mean, they all are. I think the yeah. two most interesting, and I'll throw it to Patrick on one of them, mm-hmm. but the the most interesting primary to me in the state is the Houston 7th. It's the race to take on John Culberson. I think it's one of the strongest Democratic fields in a House race in the country. You've got an Emily's List candidate. You've got um, an, uh, a candidate named Alex Triantifilis. I think that's how you say his name. He's he's goes by Alex T. Uh, he's the top fundraiser. But then you've got two candidates who don't have as much money, but they have sort of garnered the internet. One is named Laura Moser, and she's sort of got a lot of the Bernie internet savvy, and she's now got 32,000 followers on Twitter. Um, and then there's a cancer researcher named Jason Weston, who two weeks ago was endorsed by Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker. So it's, and then there's a whole slew of other candidates in the primary. And then the other primary that I think is fascinating is the race to replace Lamar Smith, and I'll throw that to Patrick. Yeah, there are, there are 18 Republicans running in that race. Um, some of them are obviously more serious uh, than others, uh, but even among the kind of serious group, it's still a, a, a rather large group, and I think that race is all but all but guaranteed to go to a runoff. I'd argue that that's probably the most uh, competitive uh, primary Republican congressional primary right now in, in Texas. So, I mean, and you have candidates positioning in very unique ways in that field. You, you see, you've seen at least one or two candidates try to embrace the Trump mantle mm-hmm. and try to pre- present themselves as the most pro-Trump uh, candidate in the field. You obviously have Chip Roy running uh, for that seat, who's the former chief of staff to Ted Cruz, and he has, uh, you know, embraced the Cruz connection. Um, you know, he's Cruz is in his ads, Cruz is campaigning for him, Rafael Cruz, Cruz's dad is out campaigning for him, and so I think that you have some some really interesting. I don't want to call it a proxy war, but you have different alliances um, in that race that you know when things really heat up could I think be mm-hmm. you know exposed in a really dramatic and way. And you have I, Jen Sarver who voted for Hillary Clinton, right? Exactly. right. And you actually, <laughs> you know, it's okay. funny you mentioned that because there's actually, you know, one or two, including two or three maybe candidates in that field, including Sarver, who are, are, who are trying to run as kind of like the the sensible, rational Republican. Moderate woman, which, yeah. <laughs> which shows you how big the field is that yeah. apparently there's even space for people like that. Somebody this, of all stripes. And, uh, right. what, what are folks hoping to hit in the primary to make the runoff? Are we, are we talking like 9%? Yeah. yeah. That's what I was wondering. Like, <laughs> what do you be. actually need to make the runoff? I mean, it yeah. could be next yeah. to nothing. You know, one one set of candidates within that primary we didn't mention are some of these candidates who just walk in with a little more name ID than the other people because they've run in the region before. And I think they're viewed as somewhat, I don't want to call them wild cards, but people who still have a decent chance. You've got people like Kiko Canseco, um, former congressman from the neighboring 23rd district, right. has well been, on, been on the congressional ballot in, in San Antonio, you know, several times has run a lot. You've got Matt McCall, who ran as a primary challenger to Lamar Smith, I think twice before. And you've got Susan Narvice, who ran against Lloyd Doggett, again, same geographic area, I think several times. And so those and are another Jason kind of- Jason Isaac, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jason State representative. his district is part of that congressional there's a little district. There's yeah. a little overlap there. Yeah. He's from Dripping Springs, though, which ironically enough is kind of like cut out of the, oh, the yeah. congressional district. Is but he's, he the one he with has Carl Rove working on his behalf? 
Right, exactly. I, I forgot it, if the fundraiser already happened, but there was an invite that went out for an Isaac fundraiser hosted by Carl Rove and his wife. And uh, just to show you kind of the dynamics in this race, immediately Brad Parscale, the Trump digital director from mm -hmm. 2016, who's supporting another candidate, Robert Stovall, uh, came out and attacked Isaac for, you know, how can you, you know, have a campaign slogan called Make America Like Texas and then also raise money with Carl Rove. Right. And so that just shows you, I think, some of the, the kind of competing factions in that race. Well, a couple of questions coming in on social media. Um, Mary wants to know, what's going on in District 3, the race to replace Sam Johnson? Is that a hot race or not? No. Yeah, no. I'd say it's, it's definitely not at the top of our list right now. Van Taylor yeah. in the Republican primary, state senator from Plano. Um, I think he was you know, long expected to run for that when it opened up. And so far, uh, he has not given us any reason to worry about him not uh, being the Republican Clinching nominee that. and then and then winning in the general election. There are, I believe, a few Democrats who've, who've lined up uh, and, and, you know, are running credible campaigns on in, in the primary at this mm -hmm. point, but it's still a very Republican district, and, and Taylor, I think, is going to have the financial resources to, to compete through to the finish line. Two more. We're going to do a little yeah. lightning round here from our social media questions. Uh, Alan wants to know, what are your thoughts about the Republican primary in CD5? That's the Jeb Hensling district. I haven't gotten too deep into that. Do you do you know that one very well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are a number of, of, of candidates running serious campaigns in that district. The fun the fundraising leader who's emerged uh, head and shoulders above everyone else is Bunny Pounds, mm. who is Jeb Henserling's former fundraiser, former political staffer, and he's endorsed her and helped her raise money. And so she has that those connections right off the bat, and I think that's helped her in, in an abbreviated a primary like we've seen so far, but you all you also have former state representative Kenneth Sheets running in that uh, in that district. You also have uh, current state representative Lance Gooden, who has significant geographic advantages in that district based on his state house uh, seat and, and the parts it represents. Uh, and then you also have Jason Wright, who like Chip Roy in Texas Twenty One, is a former Cruz staffer who is getting basically all the benefits of the Cruz political machine right now. Encyclopedia yeah, I, I, Jones I, I, over that's here. That's exactly the word that I had. Encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, one more. Um, CD32, should that be 20? Uh, the questions are on Pete Sessions' district. Is that 23 or 32? 32. Um, 32. That's an interesting race. You've got a uh, former State Department Hillary campaign staffer named Ed Meyer who has just blown everyone out with his fundraising. And has, he's clearly thought about Congress for a long time, and his FEC reports have every sort of Clinton loyalist you can imagine. Um, but it's still an interesting field. It's probably going to go to a runoff. Um, one of the more interesting candidates I met recently with was Lillian Salerno. She's a former, there's a for, lot of former Obama and Hillary staffers mm -hmm. in this race. Um, and she has actually worked on, she worked on President Obama's 2008 campaign. So she's knows how to run a campaign and now she's the, the principal. So that's going to be an interesting <clears throat> transition. And she's got an Emily's List endorsement. Um, there's also Colin Allred, uh, who was hyped early on. He's a former NFL player. He was a football star at Hillcrest High in the district and at Baylor. Um, but he sort of underwhelmed the world with his fundraising. And I know there's more candidates, and I need to hit. Oh, Brett Shipp, the WFAA oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, newsman. And I grew up in the <laughs> newsman. I grew up in that uh, media market, so I was very familiar with him. But again, he did not raise that much money. He got in very late in the quarter, but uh, he certainly has raised eyebrows and how he seemed to underestimate how hard it is to run for Congress. All right, because our people on social media won't stop asking, I'm going to give you one more. <laughs> what are your thoughts about District 27? Uh, that's the Blake Farrandold seat. Marcos wants to know. 
I haven't gotten too far into the weeds. It looks like it's this guy Breck Brun, Brun. Um, Patrick. Yeah. I mean, it, do yeah. You I think, think that yeah. If there are two top candidates, and that's Beck Brun or Brun, I forgot how to pronounce his last name. And then Civtech. My, <laughs> my yeah, exactly. Mike, <laughs> Michael Cloud, who I, I believe is an SREC member from the area, former county party chair from the area. Um, so far, I think the things that have caught our attention the most in this race <laughs> are just some of the endorsements. You've had people like Rick Perry endorse uh, Beck Brun. Um, or Brun. Uh, and then uh, the most notable endorsement that I've seen Michael Cloud get has been uh, Ron Paul, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's who's from the area. And I, and I think Cloud kind of associates a little bit with the, the libertarian uh, part of the Republican Party, too. All right. Well, for those of you who want more on this, you're going to have to wait until next week. We'll hit the next round. We'll have to invite Abby back. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this Tribcast on iTunes, please take a second to review us and subscribe. Here's a recent review from TXLC Williams. I follow the Trib on Facebook and watch their weekly newscast. They're interactive live newscast, I'm assuming that's the Tribcast, is a great way to catch up on important news and give feedback and get replies from the Trib broadcast live. Uh, we serve, we are at your service here. All right, Jay, George P. Bush hasn't been able to stay out of the headlines lately. At first, he mm-hmm. made some comments to the Brian Eagle that he had to walk back, suggesting he wanted a special session for Harvey relief and to tap the rainy day seems fund. Seems like two years ago. It seems like two years ago. It was basically like two weeks ago. Um, then, Jay, you had a, a pretty big story on Friday. Tell us what that was so harvey is indeed uh, a, a political problem for george p bush because he has uh, a lot to do with the housing situation and you know people have been blown out of their homes and are trying to get back to their homes and he has a major role in fixing that and and one of the things that they did in late 2017 was they hired a private accounting firm horn llp to help with the housing claims and, and, and you know, do uh, provide accounting services to keep up with all of this stuff. It's a 14, almost a $14 million contract. And uh, three days after they signed this contract with Horn LLP, Horn LLP executives, almost three dozen of them, gave uh, close to $30,000 to George P. In a Nothing, campaign, campaign, in a campaign donation. Campaign right. donation. Nothing illegal about that. Um, but the optics are pretty horrible. Um, and, of course, they said it was fake news, non-story. Yeah, I love that the actual quote was that this is fake news. Like, that that gets thrown around as it's right. actually, it's a fact, and they call it fake news. Right. Well, and, you know, it's like, it, you know, that was in response to my question trying to verify the facts. And so it's true that the fake news label just gets really misused but you know it is true and 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 what was really interesting too was that one of the people that the guy who actually signed the contract on behalf of horn three days later made a one thousand dollar contribution he didn't you know reply to requests for comment i did get you know i went down the entire list and called every single person that gave money and three of them picked up the phone and one of the guys said i made it on behalf of the company mm-hmm. so you know that sort of ties the the company to this uh transaction right. i mean the bush's office basically <clears throat> or his campaign said you know these contributions came after the contract, not before. Even and, yeah, which, which you look at that and you go, right. who splitting came? I mean, hairs, what, what, right? What does that you know? It's a thank you, a thank gift, you, basically. or agrees the skids or whatever. I mean, right. we all know this goes on that there are contractors who give money, and again, it's not illegal. In fact, I'm, I'm told you could actually request a list of contracts that your agency 
you know, put out there and then go down and call every company and say, hey, would you, you know, could you give me money? Now, you, you couldn't say, I'll give you another contract or whatever, but, you you know, it's there's nothing illegal about that. But that's actually, to me, a, a really good use of disclosure and where we put it out there and then people can judge for themselves. I mean, you see the facts. You see when the contract was signed. We have the contract up on the website. We have a, a link to it and we have a, the page taken out, the signature page. We have the page of the donation of the guy who signed the contract. You be the judge. Right. Uh, a couple questions coming in on social media. So Patricia asks, you know, don't we use competitive bids in Texas? Was this competitively bid? Maria asks, why are we just being just learning about this now if it happened in October? Well, the report, the finance reports didn't come out until January. Right, so, so that's you, the challenge. There's always a lag in this stuff right. because we don't get them until the reporting period ends. Yeah, and I really think that we, you know, in Texas, um, there's so many examples. We could talk about this for hours about how weak the Ethics Commission is, how weak the laws are intentionally. So, but but that is part of the problem. We, you know, if we had instant disclosure, we would we would have known about it at the time. Um, the contract disclosure is actually pretty good. They put, you know, because, in part because of what Jane Nelson did, Senator Jane Nelson and the legislature, there's a lot more disclosure of contracts. It's very easy to get these contracts. And so, you know, it was like I got the tip, take a look at this contract, and lo and behold, there it is, Jonathan Krebs, the name of the Horn mm -hmm. LLP executive on there. And then, boom, it shows up in the report once we get the report. Well, we didn't get the report until basically late January. Mm -hmm. And so that's well, the reason why we're I just mean, finding out about it now. I got to ask, how many of our tips these days are Jerry Patterson, the, you know, the, the, his George P's predecessor in this office, who's trying to reclaim his seat, you know, trying to start a stir up trouble over there? Well, look, full, you know, obviously I'm not going to reveal who my sources are. No, and, I, you know, I'd never mo ask mo you Most to. <laughs> reporters, most reporters talk to Jerry. Jerry has a very good free media strategy because he doesn't really have any campaign finance, you know, doesn't have any campaign money to speak of compared to uh, George P. But he does have a good media strategy. But let me say this. There is no shortage of tips floating around right now about George P. Bush. Mm -hmm. And it's not just coming from Jerry Patterson. I don't even cover him and I get them. <laughs> so why is this? I think like there's like a Bush, you know, the Bush name is, let's be honest, not what it used to be. Um, after the Iraq war and all of that, I mean, being a Bush, you know, it used to be, I, I think you could say it used to be a net asset. And obviously there's a fundraising network. There are a lot of operatives out there that are loyal to the Bush family. But in terms of like retail political level, when you say you're a Bush or affiliated with Bush, it's not, it's not the benefit that it used to be. I mean, so is there any sense that he's in trouble in the primary? Well, I mean, you know, the polls and, and you know, that kind of evidence suggests no, but um, primaries, you know, don't draw the, the number of votes that a general election does. And so, you know, something could catch fire. And, and there are two big issues in this race, and they're, and, and they're really iconic. One of them is Harvey, mm -hmm. worst storm ever in Texas, right? Um, 
and then there's the Alamo. What what shrine, what icon is bigger than the Alamo? And he sort of got the tiger by the tail on those two issues. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, how bruised does George P. get on, George P. Bush get on these two important issues between now and March 6th? Uh, you know, I, I, at this point, I, I wouldn't put my money on Jerry Patterson necessarily winning on March 6th, uh, but I think that there could be a you know real damage done to just the perception of his stewardship on these of his leadership and stewardship on these issues if things continue to go down the path that they're going on as it relates to the scrutiny he's drawing on these two issues and, and I think that that's you know you don't have any other super competitive remotely competitive State statewide wise. Republican primaries and people are going to notice if you know. Uh, George, the margin in the land commissioner race is is much smaller than it is in other races, um, especially for somebody who I am. We are all assuming has ambitions that go well beyond the land yeah, commissioner. Yeah. So I think the question over the next two weeks is is how banged up is is he going to get on these two? As, as Jay pointed out, very important issues within the mm -hmm. context of the general land office. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Well, just a reminder, if you're watching, listening on social media, uh, send us your questions in the comments and we'll do our best to get to them. Um, Patrick, you had a great story this week looking at the issue that was so front and center during the legislative session, bathrooms uh, that are notably absent in the GOP primary campaigns largely. What's going on here? Yeah, so we've got less than a month until uh, primary election day, March 6th, and there's there's really no Republican primary right now for the legislature where the bathroom bill, a candidate's position on it or lack of position on it, support for it or lack of support for it is a is a major point of, of contention, basically. It's coming up in a few races, but it's certainly not the centerpiece of, of any real primary right now that I've that I've noticed. Mm -hmm. And as we talk about in the story, there are a number of issues, I think a number of reasons for that. Uh, the two House Republicans that were most closely associated with the failure of the bill, Joe Strauss, the Speaker, and Byron Cook, they're not seeking re-election, so they're not going to be in primaries where it could be an issue this cycle or where there could be spillover uh, into other primaries uh, that could be tied to theirs. And so, you know, and ironically enough, you know, that's one, you know, that's one of the main reasons, <laughs> one of the main benefits of them blocking the bill is they shielded 93 other House Republicans, from you know, having potentially to hear about from, it for months. Yeah. Know, from having to hear about this. And so, um, um, there's two sides to that coin, obviously. Um, another thing is Dan Patrick, who is the biggest champion of the bill. Um, you know, it just hasn't been talking about it uh, with the same level of enthusiasm that he talked about it in the lead up to the sessions and during the sessions. Why is that? I mean, it, that can't just be because Joe Strauss isn't running for Sure. The well, his, his public explanation and, and, you know, in October, he told us and a few other media outlets that he believed that they had already won on the issue. They had just by having this big uh, contentious debate. <laughs> Uh, at the Capitol, that they sent the message to these businesses and schools that may have these accommodations that you're going to you're going to draw the ire of the state if you if you push again in this direction. So that's his public explanation. Um, I just think that there are you know politically right now there in the Republican primary uh, in Texas there are, there are issues that just uh, register much higher. Um, you're seeing property taxes come up in a lot of primaries. You're seeing uh, immigration and how far the state can go in, in border security and in cracking down on illegal immigration. You're seeing those issues come up before you're seeing people. People even get to um, uh, the issue of bathrooms or, or privacy, as, as the supporters uh, call it. I mean, there was a great quote in my in my piece from a. Uh 
consultant for a, a primary challenger who's running to the right of an incumbent, and the consultant said, you know, look, <laughs> basically, Luke we, yeah, Luke Messias said, you know, we got bigger fish to fry. This incumbent, you know, we, we believe this incumbent is so far out of step with the party on, you know, border security, property taxes, abortion, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, the bathroom bill is the fourth or fifth on our list of, of items. So um, I just wonder if it is, if the truth isn't really that this feels politically toxic and like a loser in the long term. Uh, well, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, like that's the, what the you can read between the you know, there's some sure. really powerful business interests that are against this, mm. like big right. time donors, big time companies, Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, all those dark money donors in your yeah. Texas Association of Business <laughs> <Exactly>. story. <laughs> um, and that, that's a flip side to this narrative, too, is that you had the, the business community and the bathroom bill opponents coming into this primary season talking about playing a more aggressive role. And in some ways they have, but in doing so, they haven't forced, I don't think, a big conversation about uh, the bathroom bill and the economic damage it could have done mm -hmm. in these primaries. Abby, did you hear anything about it in congressional races at all? I mean, obviously, it's something that hasn't been on the stage at the congressional level, but, you know, just sort of like WTF Texas? No, I, I think the thing to understand about federal stuff is that Harvey, I mean, there's just so many other issues that are overwhelming that bathroom bill just seems like a million miles away. And so it may have surfaced and I just haven't seen it, but it certainly has not come up in any of the, anything I've done. Right. Um, yeah. Ash wants to know on social media, since the bathroom bill hasn't ended up being the Republican primary campaign issue it was slated to be, do we think it's less likely to be a major issue in the 2019 session? Sure, that's a good question. I was going to note before this something that uh, Jessica Shortall noted on uh, Twitter. She was uh, one of the kind of anti-bathroom bill business-aligned mm -hmm. leaders during the session was that this issue is still on the Republican primary ballot as kind of a ballot non-binding ballot proposition. The Republican Party agrees to put certain issues on the ballot to gauge support for them. And so you will see this issue uh, on the ballot. Um, what the story was talking about was it not coming up in member-to-member -member, uh, primaries. So this issue is still alive in that sense. And, and whatever the outcome of that uh, ballot proposition, uh, you know, again, non-binding, could be used against incumbents in the future and could be used as the basis for arguing that it needs to come up again in 2019. They can, you know, for example, the supporters can say, you know, in the Republican primary in 2018 or whatever, there was X percentage support for this. Mm -hmm. We need to we need to continue to drive uh, on this issue in 2019. So that could be used as a, a premise for bringing it up again in right. 2000. Uh, I mean, maybe. do we are are there sort of more moderate Republicans running who are uh, sort of brave enough to make this an issue, or this may be the kind of issue that comes back up much more when we get to the general and Democrats are saying, you know, look what yeah. these guys did. There are a few cases, as we point out in the story, where I've seen the kind of uh, moderate Republican in primaries try to bring it up against the the more conservative uh, candidate. There was a state Senate race where uh, a challenger, you know, attacked the incumbent for trying to keep the government in the uh, boardrooms, bedrooms and bathrooms or something like that. So it's, it's, it's come up in that way a little bit. Honestly, you're seeing Democrats, you know, talk about it more. Right. Um, and, yeah, and why, it's and why more of a rallying right. cry right. for right. them. Right, exactly. And, yeah. and why wouldn't they? I mean, they, you know, it's kind of exhibit A in their argument that Texas Republicans have been, you know, focused on the wrong issues. Yeah. Well, um, Abby, we have a couple minutes left here. And I just, uh, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about the sort of um, deteriorating national environment for the U.S. House and, and what the relevance is back home in Texas. Yeah. So we, um, a week ago, Monday, a congressman from New Jersey named Rodney Freelingheisen retired. And that's a hard enough name to say and spell. And um, my editor, Iman, and I, when we saw it, our hair went on fire because we've been watching for that for a long time. And I think it's emblematic of two things. One, um, he's the appropriations chairman of the U.S. House. That 
chairmen on the Republican side are term limited. What we saw when all these Texas members retired, often they were chairmen and they their time had run up. This guy had two terms left. Um, so for one, that was interesting to us because it meant there was a chance for Kay Granger to make a play for that seat in, or the chairmanship, and she's going to. But kind of the brutal irony of it is, Frelinghuysen is a seat that I've covered these races for 10 years I've never paid attention to. And I've been hearing all year he was polling underwater. And so if his seat is in trouble, that means the House is in trouble for Republicans. So Granger um, may not even be competing for a chairmanship. She may be competing for a ranking position. And so what we're seeing is just retirement after retirement. The other state's filing deadlines are so much later than Texas. The Texas retirement season's over, but we're just seeing incumbents fall left and right. And um, that is the strongest indicator you can find in whether or not this is an, you know, you can speculate, you can guess, but this is real action to watch. And so it is, Republicans had felt like things had maybe stabilized in the last month after tax reform got through, but it is certainly looking extremely dangerous for Republicans. And that could have huge consequences a year from now, because then you'll have Democratic chairman with a subpoena power against the president. So we have a rollicking year ahead. Rollicking gear. Uh, one more question, Patrick, for you. Uh, obviously, we're not we're not thinking that Abbott's gubernatorial uh, reelection bid is in any trouble, given how much time he spent um, focused on legislative races. D- <laughs> d- oh, there's a lot of that. You can read our yeah, yeah. website today to learn all right. about that. Um, but you had the latest numbers out of the Democratic gubernatorial fundraising this week. Uh, is is Lupe Valdez in trouble in her Democratic race um, against Andrew White? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the fundraising numbers, she's definitely disappointing. Um, you know, she raised 40-some thousand dollars. <laughs> Patrick's in, personally disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I, I want this to be a race. Um, yeah. You know, she raised 40-some thousand dollars in December, and she later said that, you know, she was still sheriff then, so she was going to pick up the pace in January. Well, the, the report, you know, came out this week, and she raised 40-some thousand dollars again in January, including a $5,000 loan to herself. Um, you know, the, the biggest financial contrast to her has been Andrew White, and he uh, loaned himself a million dollars in January, and he got, but he still got more contributions, more money in contributions than she did. I think it was a hundred, uh, mid mid hundred thousand. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the, the, we've got less than a month to go, and uh, there hasn't been too much, you know, uh, contrast actively drawn uh, among the the candidates. They were at a forum last night, and they mainly kept it friendly. Um, you know, people who I think. <laughs> It's it's, it's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch. To watch. I mean, <laughs> Lupe obviously has a very compelling story. Mm-hmm. I think that she, um, you know, to, to many Texas Democratic primary voters, she represents the, the future of the party and, and where the state is going uh, writ large. Andrew White, on the, on the other hand, is trying to make the argument that, um, you know, he is the best candidate to take on Abbott in November. Obviously, mm-hmm. the financial information, you know, helps back up that argument. He has some some issues with the Democratic primary voting base, but at the same time, he's, he's been an impressive candidate in terms of showing a fluency in kind of the politics of the moment and going out there and being being energetic on this. And she did not, that Dallas Morning right, News exactly. editorial, she yeah. didn't know if the border spending was $8 million or $8 billion or whatever, something like that. Right. It was right. like, I think what it wasn't I'm, even close. What I'm seeing, what I'm hearing y'all say and what I'm seeing in the congressional races is we're seeing this huge flood of recruitment and people throwing their hat in the ring to run, but they're having sort of a rude awakening of just how hard it is to run for office mm-hmm. and how you have to raise money and money just doesn't come to you. And right. the, I yeah. mean, there's there are more robust slates of interesting candidates, candidly, at the mm-hmm. congressional and legislative level than we're even seeing in many of these statewide races. Sure. So, yeah. 
All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to you teach and the Texas Alliance for Patient Access, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Patrick, Abby, Jay, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Ooh, Texas talking. Texas talking. Talking about Texas talking, baby. Texas talking, talking about that. Texas talking, baby. Texas talking. Don't let me see you cry. We called the smell of money and liberty. <laughs>